The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think, feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger, or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Everyone, welcome back to the Nicholas Gregoratti Show. I am your host, Nicholas Gregoratti. Have such an unusual and powerful guest today. Before we get into the chat with him, I just want to remind any of the Jiu-Jitsu guys listening, if you're looking to affiliate your academy with a unique and fun Jiu-Jitsu association, please head on over to subconsciousbjj.com. There you can find out more about my association. It's called Subconscious Jiu-Jitsu Association. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's very close to my heart. I've been working on it for over two years now, and it's, it's really starting to take off and we're, we're building great momentum and there's a great energy. And if you ask anyone who's involved in it, they'll tell you how much they're getting out of it and how it's helping them spread the magic of jiu-jitsu. You know, you've seen it in your own life, I'm sure, just how powerful jiu-jitsu is for transforming your life and just helping you become the very best person that you can be. And that's what we're all about at Subconscious. So if you're needing an association or wanting to perhaps open your own academy and be associated with a, a team that really cares about you, that has incredible instruction, that does loads of cool stuff, and just is, uh, I believe, a cut above, please head on over to subconsciousbjj.com and you can find out more about what we do there. You can send a message to us via the website and one of us will get back to you. So today's guest, Mr. Jeffrey Madoff. Wow, what a, as I said earlier, what a powerful man. I didn't know him before starting the recording, but uh, he's one of those guys you can just tell he has, he has a presence and an intelligence and I can just sense he's one of those people who gets things done. I was reminded of, and I brought up the subject of the show Mad Men while we were we were talking. That's one of my favorite TV shows ever, if not my favorite TV show ever. I just love the uh, the character arcs and how complex the characters are in that show. And it was one of the things that really helped me understand that you know people aren't just good or bad; they are multi layered and you know complex and there's a lot more to it than, than just being able to put them in this particular box. And uh, listening to Jeffrey and his his stories and his perspectives, as I said, reminded me of that show and it was really refreshing. He's unlike anyone I've ever had on as a guest and I think you'll find him very entertaining and informative. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Hey brothers, welcome back to the Nicholas Gregoratti show. I would like you to welcome Jeffrey Madoff or be Jeffrey Madoff who is a professor, author, and host of Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming on the show, my man. Thank you, Nick, for having me on. Yeah, man, you're a very interesting guy from what I can tell. The first thing that came to mind when I looked at your background and bio is I just thought of that show, Mad Men. Do you remember that show? That uh, Oh, yeah. 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 So is there any any accuracy to that? Are you one of the the guys who shaped us as a consumer, a consumer society from back in the day? Probably not in any major way, 
but uh, you know, Mad Men was an interesting time, interesting era. And there's, it's actually a friend of mine who greenlit that show. Really? Yeah. The, Mad Men was turned down by every single network. And nobody thought that it had uh, any legs that, you know, it was a one trick pony. There wasn't going to be an ongoing story. that was worth anything. And this friend of mine who we've been friends since college, and he handed me back then a VHS cassette and said, here's a pilot for a program we're considering. I'd like you to take a look at it. I'd like to hear what you've got to say about it. And I said, sure. And then I saw the title Mad Men. And I said, so this is, I assume, as opposed to insane mad, it's Madison Avenue, right? And he smiled and said, yes. And I said, well, you're going to do it. And uh, he was at that time the head of Rainbow Programming, which became AMC Networks. And he smiled and said, why do you say that? I said, because you're your dad. His dad was the Don Draper type. You know, oh, the wow. charming. Okay charming guy that could win over room with his charisma and creativity and ideas. So yeah, do I like to think I could channel a little bit of that when I was pitching ideas to people that they would be so seduced by my innate magnetism and that they would uh, buy into the ideas. Yeah. But it wasn't quite as cool as it was portrayed (laughs) on Mad Men. I find that story fascinating for a couple of reasons. The first is that I think, I just instinctively picked up on it that you have some sort of connection to that that particular text. And also, you know, it's it's almost a cliche now that all the great works or great businesses or, or life-changing ideas that emerge in our society are initially met with either disdain or resistance or both. And uh, it does, I mean, to me, Mad Men is probably the greatest piece of television that's ever been created. And it does not surprise me to hear that all the networks turned it down initially. I have to say, I, I do differ with you. I think that the I loved Mad Men. I thought it was terrific. And one of the best series finales ever, you know, when it ended up on the I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Yeah, amazing. Uh, amazing. Yeah, it was so fabulous. And I use I actually use that scene in uh class that I teach because <laughs> it's just such a great culmination because what does it even mean i'd like to buy the world a coke what what does that mean you know imperfect harmony i'd like to buy the i mean it's it's so meaningless that it becomes classic advertisement right sure you know and it's the kind of thing a friend of mine has this phrase yeah sounded really good until i thought about it and it's one of those kinds of things. It's like, I don't know what any of this stuff means. And if you watch the commercial on YouTube and you listen to the lyrics, it's almost humorous. Not almost, it is humorous in the meaninglessness of the entire thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess that that could be said about the vast majority of advertising. Uh, That's true. I've I've often pondered that last scene in Mad Men. And I think there's so much to it that Oh yeah. What I got from it is that, you know, Don Draper eventually finds, he transcends himself and finds this spiritual enlightenment. And then it's basically a portent that he's, that he's ultimately going to use that to sell more goods. And services. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, you're right on that. Absolutely. Yes. No, it's, it's fantastic. So Jeffrey, I, I want to talk to you about the, I think it's the key focus of your work, which is 
the myth of the the lone genius, which is something that's pretty close to my heart because for several reasons, there's there's been points in my life where I'm like, fuck it, I'm going on, I'm going it alone. I'm doing this on my own. And it generally hasn't worked out too well when I've adopted that mindset. So I'd be interested to know what you've identified that makes you so confident that the idea of the lone genius is in fact a myth. Well, I, I'm confident that the lone genius is a myth because I've never seen an example where somebody has taken from the original inspiration an idea to that finished product or service or whatever it is, and that the person carried all the water alone. It just doesn't work that way. It takes people to get involved. And so what we like in our culture, whether it's Thomas Edison or whether it's Steve Jobs or now Elon Musk, somehow the visionary genius who sets everything into motion and did it alone. People Mm -hmm. don't even realize that Tesla, he bought Tesla. Tesla existed before Elon Musk bought it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not taking anything away from his intelligence and his vision, because I think he's kind of an idiot savant, and he's been absolutely brilliant at it, but he didn't do it alone. And SpaceX wasn't done alone, and nothing was done alone. Edison didn't invent the light bulb alone. So, you know, one point, and this really, it really hit me, I was having dinner with two Nobel scientists, Nobel award-winning scientists. And I said, what was it like when you got that call, you know, that you won the Nobel Prize? I mean, that's about as as an impressive an award as you can get. And both of them separately said, honestly, we thought it was kind of ridiculous. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? So, well, on the work that they were doing, each of them worked with hundreds of scientists And the working with those scientists is what enabled them to do the extraordinary work that led to the conclusions that led to the award. Mm. But the notion that they did it alone, he said, when I was accepting the award, I thought there were 350 people that ought to be up here with me. Mm. And too often we don't hear that. And that's not false modesty. That's reality. That's what it takes to do something. But we like to, you know, it's, it's really hard to imagine a group that large being responsible. And of course, there's somebody that captains the group and all of that. But I think that it's important to realize that to get anything of any size done, it requires great collaboration and the minds of lots of people to execute in Mm. order to get it done. Mm. This is this is to me an incredibly interesting line of of thinking. I'm reading a book at the moment, which I referenced in a previous episode of my show. It's called under the banner of heaven. It's about the the Mormon church, the roots of the Mormon church, and also an incident that happened in the latter part of the 20th century. And when they discuss the history of Mormonism, it's it's obviously, you you cannot extricate it from the history of Joseph Smith, you know, the founder of Mormonism. And there's this idea that keeps getting presented in the book that Mormonism, this what it's grown into a movement that I think I think there's 18 million Mormons in the world now, and it really influenced American society, was actually just powered by the charisma of the founder. That's Joseph Smith character had so much personal magnetism and so much drive and ambition in this, this belief that he was an authority or speaking on on behalf of God. And 
so it kind of goes against what you, what you're saying about you know there's the, the myth of the lone genius. I, I don't think it's as cut and dried as, as that because he obviously had acolytes and followers who helped him propagate the religion. But I think uh, we as a society we like to find this lightning rod of the single individual and then create a narrative around it that yeah this guy did this whole thing on his own. And as you said, it's just not true. Like no man is an island, and we all need people and we all need each other. And yeah, I, I, I agree with you for sure. Well, you know, you can substitute Joseph Smith and you can put in Jesus Christ and you can say the same profile, right? There's a charismatic leader that, uh, and by definition, they attract people and then expectations and so on are built and a narrative is built. Uh, and by the way, going back to Mad Men and advertising, you know, that is the template for advertising is uh, the, the template for advertising is a story that creates an emotional resonance with the consumer. And that emotional resonance is what attracts consumer base. There's a consistent message, a narrative that's created, a logo in the case of Christianity, a crucifix, or it could be the Nike swoosh or the Apple or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's that. And so I think that we have always historically from the beginning, uh, charismatic leaders, whether you're talking about Scientology, I mean, I, when I saw the documentary going clear about Scientology, did you happen to see that? Yeah, I did. Mind blowing. And I'm thinking though, who would follow this guy? <laughs> you know, yeah. this guy seems like a total whack job. Who would follow him? Well, who follows him and who follows any charismatic leader, especially in somewhat, let's say, questionable groups? And I think lots of groups are questionable. Mm -hmm. There are people who are rudderless at that time, and they're attracted to a charismatic leader who seems, and the key word there is seems, to have answers. Because we're all, if we're honest, we're all questioning. And if you think you know all the answers, you're full of shit because mm -hmm. you don't and nobody does and nobody will. And, but we're going to repeat this cycle over and over and over again. And I think the only reason that Scientology or Mormonism is considered fringier than the major religions is because they're newer. I don't know that they're any more or less, if you will, preposterous in what they're positing. <laughs> I've had the exact same thought. If, if so, let's say, um, Christianity is a good example of Christianity just didn't exist. And someone today started the narrative and, and explaining about how Christianity is and, and how it works. You'd think they're just as crazy as the guy who started Scientology or the guy who started any religion. Let's start, Nick, with the notion of miracle birth. Yeah. Only happened once. And I felt so bad for Joseph. You know, think about that guy. You yeah. know, his, his wife is had by God. Yeah. And, you know, Joseph's down at the bar thinking, what the fuck, you know, am I going to follow that? You know, and, and talk about creating a narrative that has lasted for more than 2000 years. Uh, and I also, also always wondered when I would think about that narrative, when they, this, when was it decided that this is B.C.? You know, sure. When did they start affixing that? You know, when did they start affixing BC to to the date? And how do they know? Oh, this would happen 300 years BC. Well, how, do you, how, do you, 
wait a minute, how did you figure that out? You know, so yeah. the, the narratives get pretty interesting, but I think that you are correct. If you started any of those things today, it would be a tougher sell. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just changing tack slightly, you believe that creative collaboration is the antidote to hustle. And this is something I'm always looking for antidotes to hustle because, you know, there is this hustle culture that's prevalent in, in part of the zeitgeist of, of our age. And oh, yeah. I think there's something to be said for it. I think if you want to create anything cool in the world, there is an element of hustle. Hustle is one of the ingredients in the recipe for actualization, success, and the fulfillment of, of objectives, right? But I think it's overplayed and it's given way too much credence. And I think also if you if you take that line of thinking to its its logical conclusion, it always ends in burnout, which is you just keep hustling and, and outwork everyone and just do more. Right. And to me, that's it just doesn't make sense because we we have finite energy reserves and we are not we are not machines as much as people would like us to believe that. We are, I always say we, we have more in common with an organic entity such as a tree, right? We're a growing, living, evolving mechanism. We're not a mechanical, um, mechanism is the wrong word, but we're not like a, a machine that's just designed to like output and work itself to the bone. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, why you believe creative collaboration is the antidote to hustle. Well, I think that the notion of hustle is important in the sense that to get any any idea out there, you've got to talk about it. You got to get it in front of people. You got to get it accepted, and that's kind of the hustle part. Maybe you need to get it financed. You know, so hustle is is in the way that I think of hustle, as opposed to just like the classic used car salesperson, right, who's just giving you a line of bullshit. The play that I wrote, we just had a our first commercial one of our play uh, last month. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I had to hustle a lot, you know, to raise the money and to put together this, you know, the vision that I had and work with the best people possible to bring that all together. There's a lot of hustle involved. And so I think hustle is absolutely necessary if you're trying to create something that goes beyond yourself. So I do think hustle is really important. But for me, the, the qualifier on that is that that hustle has to be tempered by a reality and not just salesmanship. Because when it's only salesmanship, then it's, then it's to me the kind of hustle that I find repellent, which is stop trying to sell me shit all the time. I totally, I totally agree. It's for me as an entrepreneur, that's one of the it's one of the daily battles I, I encounter, which is this, you know, you want to get your work out there, but you also don't want to be a sleazy salesman because I see some, I'm sure, I don't know if you have social media or Instagram or anything like that, but you know, when you see these things pop up on Instagram, where it's this guy talking to the camera saying, Hey, just give me a second of your time. I want to share with you five different ways you can increase ROI or whatever it might be. Like, I just find that stuff turns my stomach. But at the same time, there are commercial realities to life. And we're engaged in, if you're an entrepreneur, you're engaged in the world of commerce. So it's for me a very interesting and also challenging thing to navigate the reality and join it with the way I feel about marketing and sales. I'd love your input on that. 
Well, my feeling is, is that, and this is, this ties into part of your background, which is martial arts. I'd say to my students that it's really important to have a sense of what business is. And it's like a knowledge of the martial arts, which is how do you protect yourself so that you can continue to do what you love doing? And that's what a knowledge of business is. So that's kind of knowing your hustle so you can be smart about what you do. The parts about being inauthentic or a bullshitter about it, which is the part that repels me and sounds like it repels you, is that that's not what's bringing out the value in anything. What's bringing out the value is the, the, the intrinsic nature of the idea. Is this something that somehow makes life better, easier, simpler, whatever? And I think that the hustle is a necessary part of getting any idea off the ground because how's anybody going to know how good your idea is unless you can get it in front of them? And as your business grows, you have to keep getting it in front of more people. And of course, keep iterating on, on the idea and improving it. So, you know, I, I tie it back again to the martial arts. And there's a scene in, in a movie that's a lot of fun to watch. It's kind of a crappy movie, but it's great fun to watch, which is Enter the Dragon. Did you ever see that with Bruce Lee? I did. I always thought, I mean, I love Bruce Lee. He's one of my idols, but I always thought Enter the Dragon was overrated as well. Yeah. I mean, look, I, none of his movies were very good, but in terms of the watchability and talk about a guy that had charisma when he looked at the camera, you know, he was amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will admit that I used to go around my apartment and, you know, have shadow fights <laughs> and try to make those kind of cat sounds that he made, which I thought were really cool. And it's a good thing that the woman that became my wife never saw that part of me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I love the scene at the beginning when his nemesis holds the board right next to Bruce's face and then strikes the board and breaks it. And Bruce doesn't even blink. And then he looks at the guy and says, boards don't hit back. And life hits us back all the time. And so a knowledge of business, just like a knowledge of the martial arts, is how do you protect yourself so that you can continue doing what you want to do? And and that movie, that line in that movie always resonated with me because I th think about the students that I teach at Parsons is that they're not learning that, you know, you can have all the best plans, but once you get hit in the face, your plans can go out the window. And that's why it's so important to know how to protect yourself and knowing how to protect yourself and get your idea out there is also essential to survival in business. So when you speak about knowing how to protect yourself, are we referring to like copyrights or, or protect, protecting your intellectual property? Or what, what is it specifically that you mean when you, when you speak of that? I mean, it's all kinds of things. So anytime you enter into a transaction, anytime that you expect to pay somebody for something or get paid as a result of selling somebody something, you know, there's an, there's an implied contract. How do you make sure you get paid? Well, you sell to people who have decent credit, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's all the decisions that you make along the way in business, especially when you're starting out, because you're more vulnerable and you're more open to taking bigger chances when you start off your business because you need those initial sales to keep propelling you forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have to be smart about who you choose to do business with. 
how you price what you do so that you don't feel taken advantage of, uh, how you protect yourself once you transact that sale so that you are paid for your efforts or the product that you're selling. And so I think that it's all of those things. And as you build your business and as you go forward and as you propel it forward, you have to keep those things in mind. And that's the protection. It's a, a transaction isn't done just when you sell something. You have to deliver it. You also have to get paid for it if you expect to continue in that line of work. Agreed. Yeah, that's, I mean, I wish I'd known this stuff when I started in business 10 years ago. It would have saved me a lot of, um, a lot of difficulty, a lot of heartache, a lot of disappointment. But I, I agree with everything you've said. So let's talk more about this collaboration. Specifically, you've said um, investing in relationships is the ultimate currency. I totally agree with you on that. I, when I look at, when I think about the idea of wealth, most people think of it solely in financial terms or in terms of numbers. For me, I think wealth has many aspects and quality relationships are one of the ones, or one of the things I consider to be a true sign of wealth. So I'm totally with you on that, but I'd love to hear your take on it. Well, I think that, I don't know, this, was, this behavior was modeled by my parents. So, uh, you know, my parents had lifelong friends. I have lifelong friends. I've tried to encourage that in my kids in terms of the value and integrity of relationships uh, that you sustain over time. Mm. So it's those relationships, your family and closest friends are, and you know, you don't choose your family. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was very fortunate. I was uh, very close to my mom and dad. And that was really an important part of my development because that gave me a foundation of confidence that I could do things because they weren't the kind of parents that belittled me or belittled my efforts or why are you doing that? You know, that kind of thing. I never had any of that. And I see in the students that I teach how many people have had their creativity and their initiative stomped out of them very young, whether it's by parents, by teachers in early years, or even by their peers, you know? Uh, and so I think it's, it's really important to surround yourself with people who help you. And when I say help you, that can mean just sometimes someone who's listening to you and someone who reflects back a value that you have to them as they have to you. And so I think that the relationships in terms of emotional well-being are absolutely critical. There's a difference between those true friendships, which I think are so important because if I'm going, if the shit's really hit the fan and it's 3.30 in the morning, I'm not going to call a client. You know, uh, I'm going to call one of my dear friends and I know without qualification that they'll be there for me. That's tremendously, tremendously important. I think that when you feel totally alone, I think that's what can bring about more tragic or self-destructive impulses. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I've now got this new criteria, uh, criterion for embarking on either a romantic relationship or a business relationship, which is I, I look at that, the person I'm thinking of getting involved with. And I find, I try to find out, get an accurate picture of how many close lifelong friends they have. 
because in my past, I, I was involved with someone romantically and another person in a business relationship. And those relationships both ended, I don't want to say catastrophically, but negatively. And looking at those two people, they, one thing they have in common is they have literally no lifelong friends. And I think it's a very clear indicator of someone you, you don't want to do business with or, or get involved with. Yeah, I agree with you. I hadn't thought about that until, I mean, I thought about it some years ago, but I was already well into adulthood. I have aged, but I haven't matured a whole lot. So uh, one of the things that is critical to me in terms of relationships and friendships is the ability to laugh together and the ability to not be afraid to say what you truly think. I've never been able to, you know, sort of monitor myself. So that's a good trait. But I also think that the things that we go through are formative and those formative things make us who we are. So the things that you went through, when you say you wish you'd have known that before, you probably weren't ready to hear that before. (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. And so, you know, it takes time. I mean, at this point in my life, I think about, God, you know, I really wish I would have started pursuing this, some of this stuff that I'm doing in theater. God, I wish I would have, I would have started that sooner, but I wasn't ready yet. And what I mean by I wasn't ready yet is at this point in my life, I'm just a lot better at all those things that can help make that successful. Mm. And the lessons that I learned along the way, I think if your eyes are open, everything you do informs everything else you do and becomes a part of who you are. Absolutely. So I think that it, it, that's just, I think, part of, of life and development. But I, I agree with you. I would be suspect of someone who had no old friends. For sure. And there are people, by the way, that just have trouble connecting. That, you know, for whatever reasons, that was something that they just, I don't, I don't know if you call it a, a skill, a way of being or whatever, but there are, there are people that desire that, but finding that connection is really hard for them. For me, fortunately, it was, it was easy because that's just, you know, I think again, the way that I grew up, my parents, their whole lives had friends from their childhood. And uh, I have many friends from my childhood that I'm in regular contact with. I think it's also, it's a function and a reflection of, of who you are, right? If you're a, a friendly person, you have lots of friends, right? If you put out good stuff, you get good stuff back at its most base level. I think it can all be reduced down to that. So um, give, your, give yourself some credit. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from myself, but I think, you know, also relationships require time and effort. And I know people, and I've been there myself, you know, where, fuck, you know, why I'm always the one that's making the call. Yeah. 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 But the reality is sometimes that's just the dynamic of the relationship. Sure. So that used to bother me. It doesn't anymore. I figure that's who that person is. That's what is required to sort of set the stage for getting together. And, and, you know, it's the kind of thing that you talk to each other and you're both enthusiastic, you're happy about getting together, and then you, you know, then you don't get together. Mm. And all the best intentions kind of just go into the vapors, right? 
unless somebody follows up. Well, I don't mind being the one that follows up. If it's important enough to me, I'll follow up. And I also realize some people aren't good at following up for whatever reason. Sure. It used to used to bother me. It, uh-huh. it doesn't anymore. But I, I wanted to say there's a distinction between what we're talking about in terms of relationships. And I think this is an important distinction and business relationships. You can have very friendly business relationships of which I've had many over the years, people that I enjoy doing business with. The transactions are fun and pleasant and we're together. It looks like we're friends, but I know that we're not. Not in the way that we're talking about those relationships, because the essential thing about a business relationship is it's transactional. And the thing about a true, what I'm calling a true personal relationship is it's not about the transactional nature of it. If the only reason what sustains the relationship is that you're doing business together. And once that is taken away, well, you know, then you realize this was a business relationship. And if you thought it was a real friendship, you were deluding yourself. So there's many people I deal with and I've had clients for a few decades that I really like, I really respect, I enjoy doing business with. And people will say to me, oh, so are you really friends with us? Really friends? No. We are useful to each other. We enjoy doing business together. But do we have a true friendship? No, but that's okay. That's just a different kind of relationship. It's a transactional relationship, which is what business is. That is... That is profound. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a few days, I think, to reflect on that, the idea that there's a primary difference between business and personal relationships, and that's that the one is transactional in nature. Uh, I don't know if I agree with it, but I'm, I'm going to really think on it because I think there's this definitely something to that. And it brings up another point uh, that, that you've got a lot of understanding on from what I can see, which is you identified that for most of our history or for most of the history of commerce, there's been this schism between artists and commerce people, artists and business people. And you're saying that that doesn't have to be the case and that you can actually create a fusion of an artist slash business person. I'd love to hear more about how you came to that, that belief. And yeah, I'm just very interested in that. I'm seduced by ideas and I've only involved myself in things that I find interesting or fascinating. And of course, some things end up not being, but you don't know it until you're into it. And it could be because as a result of the people you got involved with, could be a great idea, just the wrong people, right? Mm-hmm. And that can happen. It's important to be able to draw that distinction. Was this a flawed idea or did I get involved with the wrong people and trying to execute wow. the idea? Wow. That is so, wow. That's, that is profound. Please continue. Thank you. And, uh, well, thank you. I just made that shit up. So I'm glad. That. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think that, you know, our, in our culture, one of the things that you get asked if you're going to pursue a creative career is, you know, do you say that you're going to be a writer or an actor or a musician or whatever is, well, what's your fallback position? Now, if you say you're going to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor, nobody says, what's your fallback position? Why is there one thing that's valued more than the other? Uh, They all bring value into the world in different ways. 
And of course, we love the artist who makes it big, right? You know, if they make it big, we really love that. Then you know who they are and they're famous and they're making a lot of money. But I think that from the get-go, if you have an idea and you bring that idea to life somehow, you bring it to the marketplace, so to speak, that you try to actualize that idea, that in and of itself is a creative act. And a lot of people don't think that they're creative. Now, I do believe that there's certainly people that are a hell of a lot more creative and interesting than others. But I also, I also do believe that that is something else that happens really young. When you were told that you know, your idea is stupid or you're made fun of and you become you know, less and less open to sharing those ideas because you don't want to expose yourself to the hurt and the vulnerability that that does. And for whatever reason, uh, and again, well, it's not whatever reason, it was my, my, my parents, they showed interest in what I did. And as long as I seemed engaged and happy doing it, there, that was all that they needed. They wanted to see that I was engaged, that I was doing something that I really liked. And they never said, well, yeah, but when, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to start doing this? You know, what are you going to do for real? You need time to get serious. And that whole fallback position thing, I would be asked when I started in the film business and when I started doing designing, all those things, it's like, well, what's your fallback position? I said, I don't have a fallback position. Well, what if this doesn't work out? It's going to work out. Well, how do you know it's going to work out? And I said, because I am going after this wholeheartedly and I don't have any space in my psyche for this not working out. Now, by the way, that doesn't guarantee that it will work out. And I think this is really important, Nick, is I'm never going to disqualify myself. Other people can disqualify me, but don't say no to yourself. Put your ideas out there. Try to make what's important to you happen. And I think that that's what's really, really critical. I love that. And I think that if you say no to yourself, you're disqualifying yourself and you have to look at why am I so quick to disqualify my own ideas? I've heard that said in or a slightly different idea, which I think is very similar, which is that, and I really try to live my life by this, which is that the world is going to impose a shit ton of limitations on you. So why, why add to that? Why add your own self-imposed limitations? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's right. Yeah. It's almost ridiculous for me to say this considering, you know, your, your background when I, when I read about you in martial arts. I, I wrestled in high school and college. Nice. And the thing about it that I really liked is that the moment of truth comes pretty quickly, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, it's you against somebody else out there on the mat. And when that is over, nothing makes any difference. You win or you lose. I mean, you can have a draw. But you, you win or you lose, and uh, that's all based on your conditioning, your effort, how you countered your opponent, all of those kinds of things. And I liked the simple symmetry of the whole thing. You know, it's two people out there facing each other, and you can't put it on anybody else other than yourself. And I like that about it. And I, and I didn't find that isolating at all. I found that actually quite 
liberating because it made me realize things uh, in terms of competition and what was worth competing for and what you have to do in order to prepare for competition. All of that, I think, is really important. And I think that all applies to business. And this is from somebody who thinks most sports analogies are stupid. But I really believe that that I really believe that's true. The preparation that goes into a match, you know, before you ever set foot on the mat. And as I'm sure you would agree, well, I think you would agree, is a lot of people lose the match before it starts. And I think that's true in business, too. Yeah, I completely agree. There's an expression, the, the match is won or lost off the mat, which is you know, where you do your preparation and conditioning, as you said. Uh, There's just a couple more things I wanted to discuss with you. The first is this idea that I was made familiar with several years ago. I don't remember where, where I got it from, but this guy was saying how the creating a distinction between business and anything else in your life is, is actually uh, counterproductive. And he said, there's no such thing as business. There's only life. So if you master life, your business transactions or transactions that have a business-like element to them will be, will be good as well. So he's saying, if, I, I think the point he was trying to make is that why would you act differently in business than you would act in your life? Why would you be a dishonest person uh, or an honest person in business, but then be a dishonest person in other elements of your life and carrying that to its logical conclusion why would there be any distinctions as to who you were when you're wearing your business hat or not wearing your business hat? And this kind of goes against what you said about the, the relationship idea of having business relationships and then personal relationships. But I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't go against that at all. It's really about what do you want out of something? Okay. You know, what, it, what is it that you're trying to get from something? So, Stanislavski was, was the transformational acting teacher, Konstantin Stanislavski, and he came up with what was called the method in acting. And that, that was personified by people such as Marlon Brando and just the people that are considered historically the greatest actors. And one of the things about the Stanislavski method is, what is it that you want? And what are the obstacles in the way of it? And what are you willing to do to overcome those obstacles? So when you apply that, you know, to a character, you know, you could, you could apply it to a character who's saying, I want the money. What's in the way of that money is the guards. I'm willing to kill the guards to get the money, you know, uh, typical movie kind of a thing, right? You know, the bad guys, the bad guy has got the money. I want to get the money from the bad guy and uh, I'm willing to kill to, in order to do that. I'm willing to give up being an alcoholic to pursue the love of my life because I realize there's something more important and more enriching. And, you know, you can put in any obstacle, any outcome you want and all of that. I think that the thing about, again, the transactional aspect of, of business that I mentioned, the transactional aspect of the relationships that what that has to do with is what do you want out of that? I'm not looking to do business with my closest friends. Whereas with my clients, I am looking to do business. That's why we're together in the first place. It's not like we were on the playground together and then some business deal evolved. 
And that sounds pretty seedy, doesn't it, on the playground? <laughs> but anyhow, so I don't think that they're opposed to each other at all. You have to ask yourself, what do I want out of this relationship? And when you're a kid, the only agenda, and this is, the, and again, when I mentioned earlier that I have aged, but I haven't matured, I'm friends with people that I play well with. We can play together. We can laugh together. We can share things that others might consider embarrassing. You know, we can actually talk and there's no boundaries or any of that kind of thing. Well, that doesn't apply to business, nor should it. And I don't think that diminishes the importance of a business relationship because what you want out of that business relationship is business. So, you know, and so you might as well make that journey as pleasant as possible. And so, yes, you're correct. You want to be honest. You want to do comport yourself as a human being in both of those spheres. But in business, the transactional nature of it is what's foundational to the relationship, where in your friendships, that emotional connection is what's foundational. Wow, that's what, what a great answer. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. I appreciate that. There's one more thing that I'll, I'll um, ask your opinion on, and then, and then we can start ending the, the discussion. We started ending. We started ending as soon as we started talking. <laughs> I guess that's true. The, from the minute you're born, you're dying, right? Exactly. There you go. <laughs> I thought I'd get profound there for a moment. But, uh... <laughs> so dichotomy between business people and, and artists, right? Like one of the things that I identified, you know, when I was working as a, a martial artist, right? There's a, it's a very specific term that, that describes what people who practice fighting styles for a living do. And one of the things I realized is, you know, there's this stereotype of the starving artist. That's again, it's a cliche because it's so common. And, and I realized that the reason that exists is because I hate to say it, but most artists are fucking lazy, right? The, the only difference between someone who it's like has makes a decent living from their art and someone who's starving is just industriousness because most of the time, well, very often it's not a level of talent that's holding them back. It's like, I'll give you an example. When I first started teaching jujitsu, I was teaching with a bunch of guys in London at a very prestigious martial arts academy. And me and a bunch of the other lower level instructors or lower graded instructors, uh, we were allowed to supplement our income by teaching private lessons at the school. And I remember I made five times more than the rest of the guys did just because I did things like advertise my services. Like I took out Google ads or I'd create flyers or leaflets and everything. And these guys couldn't understand it. They were like, they thought I was just lucky or that, and it had nothing to do with skill or talent because these guys were arguably just as good at me as me at jujitsu. They just didn't hustle. Right. And we brought this conversation all the way back to the beginning, but what are your thoughts on that, Jeffrey? Well, I, th I don't think they're lazy. I don't agree with you. What I think is that you had a sense of marketing and the different things that it required in order for you to get your name out there to establish yourself as a good private teacher. And so you marketed yourself smartly. They may have been working a lot harder, but they were working against themselves because they didn't really know how to apply what talents against what efforts in order to further their exposure and get more clients. So I have so many friends that are artists from painters to musicians to whatever, they work really hard. And there are those that unlock 
that and like you had the sense to realize here's how I can reach the people I'm trying to reach because I need to generate that additional income and that sort of thing. And uh, I think that, you know, you were, you had the savvy, if you will, to uh, that's what I call being smart about your hustle is, you know, how do I get it out there? How do I get myself more known? How do I separate myself from the others who are also teaching who are as good as I am? Well, what's going to be the differentiator? Well, they've heard of me. Well, how are they going to hear of me? How are they going to hear of me? Where do they look? And you figured it out. And so that requires work. There are other people that they just, they haven't paused. They haven't figured that out. It doesn't mean that they're lazy. It just means that that they haven't figured out how to do that. Now, there are those people, by the way, that want nothing to do with the dirtiness of commerce, so to speak. And they're just creative and nothing to do with business. And they're going to have a harder go of it. And that's just, you know, tougher. And I think it's a really immature way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, you, you encapsulated the thought I was trying to make in a, in a way that had far less judgment. And it, I wish I'd said it the way, the way you did. That's exactly, exactly the point I was trying to get across is it's unless you embrace some elements of commerce as an artist, you're, you're going to have a harder time. It's just, it's a fact, right? Like you, there's no way around it. And I'll, I'll put it this way, unless you're looking to just have a hobby, then you don't have to worry sure. about the business aspect. You do what it is you enjoy doing and you don't expect to make any money at it. And that's your hobby and that's fine. But mm-hmm. if you want to make a living with your creativity, then you've got to apply those business principles to it. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to make money doing it. So again, it comes Absolutely. back down to what do I want out of this transaction? I've heard it said. If you treat your business like a hobby, it'll pay you like a hobby. And if you treat it like a business, it'll pay you like a business. And that always stuck with me. Jeffrey, this has been a a great pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. If the people listening want to find out more about you, where's the best place for them to go? I'll give you a few places they can go. They can check out my website. I have two. One is madoffproductions.com. And that'll show you all the different film work that I did for Victoria's Secret and Ralph Lauren and Tiffany and a bunch of other clients. And there's also a creativecareer.com, which has interviews and so on that I've done with the guests in the course that I teach at Parsons. You can reach me at LinkedIn, be Jeffrey Madoff, and connect there. And then I post things on there from my class and that sort of thing. And on Instagram, at a creative career. And the other thing is, is that a lot of stuff we're talking about, I talk about or I write about in my book, which is called A Creative Career, Making a Living with Your Ideas. And there's questions that are asked at the end of each chapter, which uh, one of the side benefits, which I was really happy about because I didn't know this would work, is people started keeping a separate journal answering those questions and sort of kept it and reflected on those things and found it really valuable. And the book was published not quite two years ago. And now there's a bunch of people out there that generated their own journal and that started setting their own creative compass and their career compass in a way that I found very gratifying that they were using it in that way. So those are the best places to get me. And the book is available at Amazon and all fine booksellers. 
And I've enjoyed talking to you too, Nick. It's been a lot of fun and uh, feel like we, I enjoyed it. I feel like we, like we went places, which was great. So thank you. Yeah. Funnily enough, um, your, your book, creative careers, making a living with your ideas when, when um, I haven't read the book, but it's, it's when I read your one sheet, it sparked something. I mean, it, it's, I realized it's in my to buy list on Amazon, right? I saw it on Amazon a while back before I'd heard of you before we scheduled this interview. So now it's just re- moved right up to the top of my list of um, things to read. Oh, great. Um, I'm definitely going to get on that. Jeffrey, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Well, that dude was, was legit for sure. I didn't spend much time in the corporate world. I think in total in my life, I had two corporate jobs and each one I could only take for about three months before I was like, I, this is just not for me. And I, I had to get out of there. And so I don't have that much experience interacting with, I don't want to say corporate types because I don't think Jeffrey is simply a corporate type. I think he's more than that, but I don't have much experience interacting with people for whom that is their, their vocation, or that's where they've spent the majority of their time. I think my friend Rocco is actually one of the few people from the corporate world that I've spent a lot of time with, but it's always a a great pleasure for me to see how, basically see what I missed out on, you know, because I didn't choose that path through life. And sometimes I think myself, damn, maybe I should have stuck it out and maybe I should have gone down that, that road. That feeling doesn't last long because I, I'm then reminded of the reality of it and realize how, how anathema that is to my particular personality and, and character. And that <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, it's ridiculous to think that I could have even done it because it's just not in my makeup to do that, to sit in one place for the same time for, for a large amount of time and work within that kind of hierarchy and yeah, I just value my freedom too much. But I see the incredible types of people that it can create. Jeffrey's one of them, Rocco's another. You know, if the person is of a particular type and they go into the corporate environment, I think it can actually, it can hone them and improve upon them as opposed to turning them into just a boring drone or a job's worth or some other less than character and um, when I meet one of those types it's a great pleasure to engage with them as it was with Jeffrey I hope you guys enjoyed that and uh, I know these episodes are quite old to be honest I, I think this one was almost a year old it's just I've had quite a long backlog of shows it was a period last year where I was just recording maybe two or three episodes a week and then you guys know the show doesn't air as often as that we only get one to two episodes two to three episodes a month so there's this huge backlog. I'm going to clear it now. I think there's only another six or seven in the backlog. And then the episodes will be a little bit more. They'll be released a little bit closer to the time that they are recorded. Anyway, guys, thanks for all the kind words and the sharing of the podcast and the reviews of iTunes. And it just all means so much to me. And uh, bless you all. I'll be back in a week or two. Until then, remember, we're all alone in this together. Bye.